Well, good morning, everybody. If I learned anything from uh, first service, is that my notes are useless because they're about 10 times too long. Only thing right off the bat. I've actually done that before. (laughs) I got this, bro. Pray. Please pray. Just pray. All right, so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I do want to say that um, you guys are our spiritual family, and we love you so much. I'm speaking for my family, and I'm just so humbled and thankful to be here to proclaim the Word of God to you guys. So we're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to read um, starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 17 together. Not together. I'll read it. You read it with me. And, um, and then we'll pray. Okay, so the word God says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left alone in Athens and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news, literally gospel, of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if, better translated, since you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much, God, now for just the opportunity to look into your word, God, to marinate thoroughly in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we invite you into our presence by the power and the person of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might just sit at your feet, that we might enjoy you, Jesus, in an even deeper way, God, And Lord Jesus, that we would be spurred on, God, to love and to good deeds, Lord, and to pursuing a knowledge of your truth, God, and intimacy with you and with one another. We love you, Jesus. We're desperately dependent upon you for your grace in this moment, and we're just so grateful. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. Okay, guys, so um, we've been in 1 Thessalonians, and I think this is week four, maybe, and have you guys been enjoying it so far? Okay, that's the right answer. So let me try again. You guys been enjoying it so far? All right, cool. Yeah, so 1 Thessalonians is awesome. And of course, I'm all up in it because I've been studying it this past week really in depth. And what I wanted to do was just to do a little bit on the backstory. I know you've been hearing it, but just to make sure that we are all up to speed on what's been actually happening in the life and ministry of these these, uh, missionaries who... My notes are just a wreck right now. Of the missionaries who started there in Jerusalem, and then they worked their way up the Mediterranean and along the coast there, and then they found themselves in Troas. Now, Troas is like right at the water's edge of the Aegean Sea. 
And so what the missionaries did, they're spirit-led, spirit-filled, let's pray, let's seek God. So they decide to go up into the province of Asia, and the Holy Spirit just categorically says, no. We don't know how, we don't know the way it worked out, but he says, no, you're not going there. And then so they pray again, and they're seeking the Lord. They say, let's go into Bithynia, which is another province a little bit further out. And the Holy Spirit again says, no, you're not going there either. So Paul knows, hey, I'm on the battlefield, I'm a good soldier, maybe I need my rest. So he sleeps that night. And in a dream, he sees a man from Macedonia, which is across the sea now, over in southern Europe, which is modern-day Greece, Thessalonica, and that's in the province of Macedonia, along with like Philippi and the other places that he goes to. And so they say, he says, okay, we've gotten this word from the Lord, we're going. So he gathers the troops, they go over to Philippi, they do ministry there. Um, the God, God uses the gospel in just a really nutty, crazy way to bring people to himself there. And then through persecution, the gospel is then driven to Thessalonica. They have to leave, they have to go, and so they go over to Thessalonica. And before I go too far into that, um, there's, there's something that we've missed that's just super amazing. So think about this. Up until this time, the gospel itself had never been brought into Europe at this point. So by the sovereign will of God, the gospel did not go east, okay, deeper into uh, the Middle East and deeper into, into that region because the Holy Spirit said no. What he did is he drove the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit into Europe and our world has changed as a result. I mean, the sovereign God of the universe decided to do that. And so that's why the missionaries went there. Now, when they got into Thessalonica, when they got into the region of Macedonia, what they found was something that a culture, a religious culture, a socioeconomic culture in some ways that was very much akin to the coastlands that we live in. You drive up to Santa Barbara or you even walk out your door here in Carp, and what you're going to face is the same kind of things religiously, socially, uh, even economically that they were facing in many ways. Thessalonica was a port city. It was a free city, which meant that they got that designation from Rome because in the past they played really nice with Rome. Oh my gosh, Marlena, I love you. Good to see you. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Big context there. I haven't seen that kid in forever. Okay, where was I? Anyway, so this has everything to do with Marlena because we're going to talk about going to the unreached. Okay, so anyway, so what happened here was uh, they go into this culture there where, um, that really threw me off. Okay, where um, what, they, what, what they ran into religiously was this just religious pluralism, just like we have right here. Uh, actually, in Thessalonica, you could go to the synagogue of the Jews. You could go to the temple of the Egyptians. You could go to the worship place of the Romans. Or you could go to the temple for the Grecian gods. You know, just like, a, just like this... Uh, mixed soup of religiosity that you could pick from and go to. But the thing that was missing there, guys, was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you could picture just like, if we threw the lights off in this room right now, and you would still have a little bit of the dim hue from the, from the hot fluorescent lights, that's what it looked like there, okay? They were created in the image of God, so they still had something of the remnants of the truth of God stamped on their souls. But they were lost. They were lost in darkness, And they had no way of coming to a knowledge of the truth because the gospel was absent. And brethren, as we look around our world right now, there's 2.83 billion people, all right? You can't even begin to wrap your mind around that, who are unreached at this moment. And Paul went into a culture that was unengaged with the gospel. They had never heard the Lord Jesus' name. Likely, if if the Spirit hadn't driven the gospel up into there, they never would have. Born, lived their lives, died without ever hearing the name of Jesus. That's tragic. And uh, I want you to know this, that it is a core value of this church to drive the gospel with, by the influence and the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit into unengaged places. We want to do that. And that's just, that's just biblical Christianity. It's nothing like gnarly or crazy or anything like that. This is how it's supposed to be. Um, you know, for me, and for most of us, we probably just need to start right outside of our front door, though, in reality, in, you know, presenting the gospel to those who are about us. But anyway, so that was like the religious culture that they went into, just like darkness. 
And here comes Paul. He rolls into Thessalonica with his group, right? They do what they always do. They go into the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he begins to teach. And he's there for three weeks. And what he's teaching is the gospel. He says, you know that Messiah that you guys talk about all the time? He's got a name. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he taught from the scriptures proving that Jesus was the Christ. And he did it for three weeks. And the result was that many people, Jews, Gentiles, and the text even says prominent women from the, from the town, which is really, that's, it's interesting, right, that that's in there. That's really cool. Um, came to know the Lord. And so out of darkness sprung this light, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's always that way. The gospel is the only message in the midst of all the religious pluralism that can actually save your soul and that can actually bring the knowledge and the truth and the light and the life of God into your souls and into your culture. We desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It alone can save. Jesus said, it was said of Jesus, right? That there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's why he's preached here every single week. That's why the entire storyline of the Bible, front to back, is Jesus. That's what the book's about. It's about the redemption of lost sinners in Christ. Who was promised, who came, who took on flesh, who lived that perfect life, who died that wrath-bearing death, and who rose on the third day. And right now, guys, as I preach and you listen, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, giving us his spirit even now. This is the Christ who we love and that we serve and who has saved our souls. And he's the only hope. He is the only hope for our culture. And Paul knew that. And so Paul came in, you know, firing firing those guns, so to speak, you know. And his only ammunition was that, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. And what happened was, um, since the gospel took root there, and we learned this last week as our brother was preaching, that there were people within that culture who were not down with this new thing. And so they drove out the missionaries. You remember the story from Acts 17 last week. He drove out the missionaries, and they ended up going from Thessalonica, basically torn out of that, torn away from um, that little fledgling church, left Thessalonica, they snuck him out at night down to Berea, they found out, those who were troubling the church found out that they had gone down there, and so they pushed him out of Berea, they went down to Athens, and then finally down to Corinth. And so that's kind of the backstory of what happened with this whole situation. And so the church now is left leaderless, leaderless, I got that right, leaderless. I felt like there should have been another like suffix there, leaderlessly or something, I don't know. Anyway, okay, so they were left without their leader, right? Without their leaders, basically just torn away. And they were left vulnerable. They were left exposed. They were left in a really difficult situation. But King Jesus truly is the senior pastor, right? I know we say that, but he really is. And by his Holy Spirit, he made sure that they were going to be okay there in Thessalonica. All right. Sometimes notes can be more of a hassle than anything else. I'm sorry. I do need to get squared away here, though. All right. So um, it's really important, though, that we start out this way, just understanding what was going on with the backstory and... um, They're a mess. What's the point? Okay, so understanding the backstory is so important in this particular situation, right? Because now we get it. We understand why they were there, what happened, how they were driven out. And I'm really regretting what I just did. Um, So we might ask the question, though, seriously. (laughs) We might ask the question, though, seriously. Like, what was it? With, that happened with the Apostle Paul at this moment that caused him to be so anxious with what was happening within the church. Because he says in, there it is, because he says in chapter 2, verse 17, check this out. This is what he says. 
He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time. Literally, the term that he uses there is orphaned away from you. And this kind of familial kind of language is all through this context, right? He said earlier, we heard about this a couple weeks ago, that when he came with the apostle or with the, the um, missionaries there, he came as um, a father, as a caring, nurturing father amongst these people. But he also came, he said, as a mother who took and nursed them as little babies. And so Paul knew that he was leaving behind him a fledgling work. Babies, little children, so to speak, spiritually speaking. And that would trip anybody out. But the Apostle Paul knows that they are in a context where they are going to be persecuted. What they did to us as missionaries bringing the truth, they're going to do to those now who have been left exposed. And so Paul was really worried about that. And I mean, it totally makes sense, right? And if you're, if you're a parent here and you've ever had your child that's been apart from you for any length of time or in a dangerous situation, you get it, right? And for me, YWAM was the trigger for that kind of anxiety. What happened was um, several of my children, well, all of my children have had the opportunity to go um, on mission trips to various places in the world. And basically, they've covered the, the entire globe to one part or another. And um, anyway, so they, my kids have kind of like drinking that bottle of, of mission juice since they were babies. And it's all good, you know, as a parent when you're feeding them that mission juice and you're, and you're, you're all excited about this, right? And it's all theory right now, right? But then when they actually get older and they, they've grown up on that mission juice and they're ready to roll, it's kind of like, oh, wait a minute, this is real now. You mean you're going? And with Shannon, she ended up going with YWAM. And YWAM's awesome. I love YWAM as an organization, but it's terrifying for parents, right? YWAM's terrifying for parents because these kids go into their DTS and they're all fired up and this is all great and um, they're being taught the gospel, all these great stuff. And then they actually get it to go out and apply it. And the kids, they lean on the kids as groups to pray through and to try to discern really where the Holy Spirit is sending them. Well, Shannon and her group got sent down into, they determined that the Lord wanted them to go into the Amazon. And I'm like, really? I mean, I think the Lord wants to send you into like Nebraska. <laughs> so... What happened was uh, one of the guys from her team, a father from the team, called me. I'd never talked to this guy or heard about him ever in my life. And he calls me. He goes, are you Vince Nixon? I go, yeah. He goes, your daughter Shannon? Yeah. She in that YWAM team? Yeah. Well, my daughter is too. And he goes, I'm not letting her go. And I was like, oh. And, you know, I said, hey, I'm terrified right there along with you. But I think our place is just to trust the Lord in this and to support them. You know? And... um, Anyway, that phone call and the separation of my daughter being down there and knowing that there's freaking caimans and, you know, spiders the size of New York and, you know, what are those big boa constrictor things, you know what I mean, that can swallow a cow? I'm like, Shannon's 95 pounds, I'm in deep trouble here. So anyway, panic stricken. And at the time, I was a firefighter, and so I was at work, and um, I was just completely at, like, like, I'd had it. I was wigging out, and I literally prayed to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to die if I don't hear from my daughter today. I said, you know, you know my heart, Lord. I can't do this. You know, I was at my wit's end. And so when Paul says that about the church in Thessalonica, he said, when I was at my wit's end, we sent Timothy because I had to know Number one, that you were okay, and I wanted to send Timothy because Timothy could come and encourage you and comfort you with the gospel. Timothy, go figure out, make sure they're all right, and go, because we were like blasted out of there after three weeks, go in there and give them what they need in terms of teaching so that they will be okay in the midst of this really horrible circumstance. And so um, that situation with Shannon, I didn't hear from her for a long time. She was going to be launched with her team into the interior. I'm like, really? Can't she just go to like Bogota or something since you're down there? But no, they had to like follow the Amazon down and trek through the jungle. And I didn't find out until later, but they never even took like their malaria pills. We'll just trust the Lord, which is great. I'm all about that. (laughs) But come on, use the means, right? Dang it. So she came back like full of bug bites, but she just, the Lord spared her. So praise God for, you know, that he 
Here's our prayers and blesses faith. So anyway, let's leave Shannon in the jungle just for a little while. We're going to come back and get her just in a minute. But So you can imagine what Paul is going through when he's been torn and orphaned away from these people and he's in panic. And there's reasons, there were good reasons for Paul to be panicked about what was going on. Or not panicked, maybe that's a little much, but anxious and concerned about what was going on. One of the reasons is because they were this fledgling work. Another reason is because it says in verse 5, check this out. This is 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. His concern was that the tempter might come in and tempt them and draw them away from Christ. Now this is the Apostle Paul from whom we get the clearest soteriology in all of our Bible. You know what soteriology means? That's like a 10 cent theological word that means doctrine of salvation. Okay, So if we want to know like what it looks like for God you know, from eternity past to eternity to, to come to actually work in the soul of a man to save him. Paul's the guy that is teaching us the clearest thing in the New Testament, right? And the point is, is that when God moves to work upon someone's heart and to save them, what's happening in the outworking of that is something that has been settled in eternity past. This is what he says in chapter three, verse one and two. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left. Oh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong one. Chapter 1. Check this out. This is why you don't throw your notes on the ground. Oh, here it is. Okay. For we know in verse 4, brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. So the, the reason why Paul could say that with assurance that we know that you are loved of God and chosen is because when they came and preached the gospel to them, the Thessalonians took their idols and they threw them away. Not only that, but Paul says in chapter two, that when we came with the gospel, you received it, not as the gospel, not as like words of men, but you received it for what it really is, the gospel of God that is attended with power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance. He says, you received it like that. And so we can say this with confidence about you, that you are loved of God and that you are chosen. Now, those two words go together in this context. Okay, just follow me for a minute. If you look worried, okay? There is a special way that God speaks about us being his beloved. I know you've heard this before, but you're gonna hear it again. One of the designations that the Father loved to use about the Lord Jesus Christ was that he was in a place, a special place, and that was designated with a special title because he had a special place in the heart of God. And that special title was Beloved. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. That's what he said about his Son. Now, Wonder of wonders, here we are as redeemed sinners, and we get to read in our Bibles that God refers to us in Christ as the beloved of God. Thank you. No, that's ridiculous. Come on, you guys know yourselves. You know who you are. You know what you've done. You know what even as a saved person, the inclinations of your heart sometimes can be? You are beloved of God, notwithstanding all the mess. Beloved of God. Now in this context, when he connects belovedness with chosenness, what he's talking about is the doctrine of foreknowledge. Now, I hope you're seeing that doctrine doesn't have to be like this boring thing that is relegated to some shelf somewhere. No, this is, guys, this is where we live. This is it. Foreknowledge is about this, that God in eternity past has actually set his love upon you and upon me. The term foreknowledge is actually taken, the root of it is taken from the same word that says that when Adam knew his wife Eve, she got pregnant. And so there's this intimacy that is connected with this term of God knowing us. He knows us intimately, 
personally, and as a result of that, we are his prized possession, and we belong to him, and we are his beloved, and he has chosen us. Now that's wonderful. And Paul was able to say this about the Thessalonian church. I know this is true of you because I see that you're persevering. You see, guys, listen to me. There is a direct connection between justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. Let me explain that to you for just a second here because this is what Paul, this is what was in the heart of Paul. When he was dealing with the Thessalonians, when Timothy came back, he was able to give him good news, literally gospel news, that they were persevering. Awkward moment for a drink. Okay. And so what's in the heart of Paul, this is super important that you get this, okay, is in Paul's soteriology, in his doctrine of salvation, it's not Paul, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the Bible. What it teaches us is that God did set his love on us from eternity past. And I know that we all know Romans 8, 28, right? For, let me out here, get me started. Yeah, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And then Paul takes off on this concept of calling and he says, for those who are predestined, those whom God has set his love on before time past are called. That's this little practical outworking in your life when the gospel came to you and when it was met with power from the Holy Spirit and when he saved your soul. That's calling. So all those who are predestined are called and all those who are called who put their hope in Jesus are justified. What that means, I know you've heard this before, but what that means is justification, when he says that, you're justified, is that you were led into the courtroom of God, you sat there, and God put his finger, so to speak, in your face and said, you're guilty. Not that you feel guilty, but that you are guilty, and that you need that guilt to be removed. That guilt is a result of your own sin, but I'm going to do something about it. And what he does is he takes the, the absolute perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that Jesus lived out on this world, his perfect life, his wrath-bearing death, and he makes that over, the sweetness of that, the honey of that, the righteousness of that over to your account. So now he can only make one determination. He looks at you in Christ, and what does he say? Not guilty. He says, you are perfect. This is nuts, guys. You are perfect in the holiness of Jesus Christ. But I still sin. You are perfect in the holiness of Jesus Christ. You know, that's glorious. So predestined, called, justified. And the last one he says is you're glorified. See, as God looks down the timeline of life and of the world as it is, and even go back outside of the world when he set his love upon you before time began, and he looks all the way to the end and he sees you there clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Immortality or mortality has been swallowed up by mortality and you are in the presence of your Savior forevermore. And God sees that from beginning to end. That's glorious. And he encouraged the Thessalonians with this. He said, guys, I see that you've thrown away your idols. I see that God has cast his love, his sweet saving love upon you. It's obvious you're living for him. And this really in the end, guys, is what 1 Thessalonians 3 is all about. It's all about a church who is learning, living, and loving the gospel in the midst of a very, very difficult situation where they were being persecuted and again, part of the reason why Paul was so nervous about this was because it was a fledgling church, but also because the enemy of their souls was on the ground. I don't think because we live here in like Beach Central, you know, Santa Barbara Riviera, I don't think we get that we actually live on a battleground and that the souls of men are at stake. Men, women, boys, girls, you get it, right? But this is, this is real, guys. And Paul knew it. And Paul was terrified at them being left alone. Let me ask you a question. If Paul had that like God-centered view of theology, why was he so concerned that they were going to walk away from Jesus? That's a valid question. Let me ask you something. Here's where it gets interactive. You guys can raise your hand. 
Can you raise your hand if you personally know of anyone who's ever either walked away from the Lord or has, you know, just slipped back into a life that, that really denies the Lord at some level? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Can, can you please look around? That's why Paul was anxious. That's why he was terrified. Because sometimes, guys, the, the seed, the good seed, the gospel, it doesn't always fall on the good soil that bears 30, 60, 100 fold, right? Jesus taught us that sometimes it falls into places where it springs up for a moment and then the pressures of the world or the pressures of life or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life where those things come in and attack it. It also says that there is a real devil who goes about picking up those seeds. That's what Jesus said. He said the devil goes about and he picks up the gospel seeds. Don't let him pick up the seeds from your heart today. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, don't let him do that. Let the seeds take root in your heart and fill you with the joy and delight that Paul's after with the church of Thessalonica. But as he identifies this enemy as well, you guys remember like in 1 Peter where it talks about the devil going about as a prowling lion? We all know about that, right? And I think we talk about it so much that it loses its strength. And with me anyway, I, I remember it brings me back to a time when I was with my littlest one, Allie, and we were actually, there's a family at like this great cats exhibit or something like that. And all of these big cats were behind these cages and they were just, of course, just chilling there like whatever. And as we walked by, we walked by this beautiful black panther. And as it looked at me, you know, we kind of met eyes and we kind of did that like, I gotta take you, that kind of a thing, you know? And as we walked by, he, Allie was in the back. She was trailing in the back. And literally, she was like knee-high to a grasshopper. She was probably two years old. And she's walking past that cage. And as soon as she did, that a cat locked onto her like that. And literally, I was like trying to like break its stare. It was like locked on. It kind of did that cat thing, right, where it's like ready to pounce. And, um, you know, of course, I went and just snatched her up. And I was like, this is, this will belong to me. You can't eat this one. But the point is, guys, is that this concept of the tempter being here on the battleground with us and hating Jesus with every fiber of his soul, uh, being and hating us as well and desiring, it's not good enough for him just to derail you or to get you discouraged or to get you looking outside of yourself to other things like the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He's not, that's not enough for him. I don't think we get this. He literally, if he can, wants you to depart from Jesus and to drag your soul to hell. Those are hard words, but you know what? He's that enemy. And we need to view him as such. He's the tempter who's not omniscient, but he knows us. And he knows where our weak spots are. He knows where our liabilities are. And he is that one who will attack at the opportune moment. I hope this shows you how desperately we need each other. Really. Because if you think about like even the way that a, a, a cat like that operates, when he's, we've seen enough of the movies, um, right, or the documentaries, where that cat, what it does is it looks for the baby in the herd. It looks for the weak one in the herd. And what does it do with that one? It seeks to isolate that one, right? So it drives that weak one, that vulnerable one, into the bushes or away from the herd. And when it's away from the herd, now it can do whatever it wants to do. Because that little thing is at its will. I, listen to me. I hope that shows you at some level how desperately we need each other. And how desperately we need to speak the gospel continually over each other. Right? We need to have like times where we go fishing and surfing and doing our thing or whatever we want to do. Yeah, that's all part of building up the the, the union of the unity of the saints and stuff. But brethren, we need to be intentional about like caring for one another because you know what? I don't want my hand to somebody raising their hand about Vince Nixon or somebody raising their hand about you saying, oh yeah, I knew that one. He persevered for a long time, but for whatever reason, he's gone now. And here's the thing, guys. Jesus is sweeter and he's more satisfying and he's more wonderful than any of the things that this world has to offer you to tempt you away from Jesus. So the enemy in this culture can give you the lust of the flesh. What do you want? It's there for you. 
It can give you the lust of the eyes. What do you need? You work hard enough for it? You want it enough? You set your heart upon that thing like an idol? You'll get it. You need a title? Boastful pride of life? We can work on that too. The enemy does this. And one of the problems, guys, is that he actually has an advocate within us. And this is that part of the sermon where I really want to talk to you about just the messiness, so to speak, of sanctification. Because Paul says you're predestined in love, right? He says you're called in love, you're justified in love, and you're glorified in love. But in between justification and glorification at the end, there's this little messy thing called life. Life in Christ, being conformed into his image, dealing with the reality that within me I have something that's against me at some level. Because we're not fully redeemed and restored just yet. We will be one day. One day we will stand perfected. We're going to talk about that at the end. In the presence of God forevermore. But it's not now. Now we're on the battleground. Now we need to fight. And it says in Romans 8, I think it's like verse 13. He says, these are the sons of God who are led by the sons of God or by the spirit of God. We love to talk about being led by the spirit. You know what that context is actually saying? That he leads us by his spirit to kill our sin. That's literally what it says. The Spirit of God leads us to kill our sin. And it's necessary because we live on a battlefield. And it's necessary because we got this little thing called the flesh that we're still to, to push down and to deal with. And it's necessary because we're tempted by our own foolishness and our own sinfulness. And it's necessary because we have an enemy who's after us. You're like, Vince, I thought you said this was going to be an encouraging sermon. So let's, let's, let's uh, look at verse 6 then. He says this. He says, But now that Timothy has come back to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So this is what Paul says. Paul says, I desperately needed to know that you were okay. And the way that I know that you're okay, that you're actually not just like eking it through and persevering, but that you're actually thriving spiritually is because you, of these three things. He goes, Timothy came back and he says that you are growing in your faith. You're learning the gospel and walking in it. Number two, he says that you are loving God. You're loving your neighbors. You're loving us and you're loving the lost. And he says, number three, you're also remembering what we taught you in terms of how to live out the gospel life. He's talking about obedience there. And in the New Testament, there, and really in the whole Bible, but in the New Testament, it makes it clear that the way to understand this whole process of sanctification, if we're to just like make it as simple as we can, obviously there, there's a whole lot of complicated things that go into living your life for Jesus. But what he's looking for is this, like here's evidence that the spirit of God is within us. And this is what we need to cultivate, guys. We need to cultivate a love for the truth. We need to cultivate a love for those who are around us and a love for God, an intimacy with God. And we need to cultivate as well a heart that is willing to be obedient to the Lord. And it is all about your understanding of the gospel. The more that we grow in our understanding of the gospel, the more that we embrace it, the more that we're amazed that God would save a wretch like me, like we just sang, the more that that amazement just takes hold of our hearts, the more that we see Jesus and the word of God to be the Rose of Sharon, to be the glorious one from on high, to be the one who can meet all my emotional, psychological, spiritual needs. He can be there for me in everything and the one that saves my soul. The more that we understand that, guys, the more that our souls will be thrilled with him and the easier it becomes not just to you know, eke our way through this or to be that soldier who feels like every day is a freaking, you know, just a battle. And I feel that way. <laughs> Does anybody else feel that way? I feel that way so often. You know, but in the midst of that, if we have that perspective of the gospel and we're growing in that. And guys, this is, we're just, I'm just talking to you about intimacy with Jesus. About seeing him to be that precious one that you can actually draw near to. And maybe that's news to you. Maybe you're like, oh, wow, I just thought he kind of saved us and then, you know, we're good to go. No, he wants 
you to be conformed to his image. He wants to walk with you closely. He wants to shepherd you through this life. He wants to be there when your heart is broken. He wants to be there for you when, you know, you've, you've done that thing again. And the only way, guys, that we can take comfort in the midst of that is if we seek God. Now, salvation is all about God doing that on our behalf, right? That's what he did. It's a monergistic thing. It's him working, one working. God saves us. The only thing we bring to the table is our sin. But sanctification is something different, guys. Sanctification is synergistic. It's him working salvation in us, as Peter said, and us working salvation out. And there is a direct connection between the effort. Listen to me. You need to listen carefully now, or else you might get confused. Between the effort that you put in in pursuing Jesus as a saved person and the degree of stability, the degree of joy, and the degree of obedience that you're going to be able to walk in. Yeah, I said it. We need to press into Jesus, and that takes effort in order to experience and enjoy those things. And truthfully, how are we going to be an example to a culture that is perishing all around us? As they look at my life, do they want what I have? As they look at your life, do they want what you have? Guys, this work is real, guys. And so salvation has everything to do with God working, and we bring nothing to the table. You can't make yourself, even in sanctification, I really want to be clear, I feel like I need to say this. In sanctification too, you're not making yourself more savable or putting yourself in a better position with God. You're not doing that. That's justification. In justification, he says to you, you're accepted. In adoption, he says to you, I love you. You're adored. You're mine. But in sanctification, he says, here's my Holy Spirit who's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now, grow in the image of Jesus Christ. And that takes work. It takes denying your, your flesh and it takes pursuing me. But it's kind of crazy that we even need to talk about pursuing Jesus because it's like if you put like, a, like an ice cream uh, sundae in front of a kid, right? And you put anything else, let's just make it green beans or dog dew. I don't care. It doesn't matter because in comparison with that, that's what everything else is. But he looks at that and he goes, I got to have that. Look at that. You don't have to convince him. Press into that ice cream, son, right? We don't need to do that. But there's something in us, guys, we need to understand this, that needs to be redeemed and sanctified. And that's why Paul tells us that we are to be renewed or we're to be uh, conformed by the renewing of our minds. And it's so important. And so when Paul looked at the church in Thessalonica, he goes, you guys are pursuing knowledge of Christ. You guys are, are loving one another and loving us. These are the things we need to focus on. And you guys are obeying. You guys are walking in the commandments of our God. And he says, that brings such a thrill to my soul. So let's go get Shannon, huh? So there's Shannon. She's stuck in the Amazon jungle. Here's dad. He's in a full-on panic, right? Crying out to God on that day. Lord, please save my, make sure that my daughter is okay. And help me, Lord, not to, you know, run in front of a bus right now because I'm so afraid for her. And so that day, what happens is I'm on my computer at work. I don't have Skype. And all of a sudden, what happens is uh, I get like this message, Facebook message. I don't know what it was. And Shannon's like, Dad, I have a few minutes. I've got uh, Wi-Fi right now. Can, can you talk? And so I ran over into the dorm room or wherever the guys were. And I said, your computer, I need it. And I went and looked on Skype. And then a few minutes later, I was looking into the face of my beloved little girl. All right? And... Um, not only was she down there as a 19-year-old, but guess who was leading her team? Another 19-year-old. <laughs> so in that moment, you can't, I mean, you can only imagine, right, the relief that came upon my soul as I was like, yeah, <laughs> thank you, Jesus, my girl, right? And um, Paul felt the same way. So when Paul says that for me, he goes, now we live since I see that you are persevering in the faith. It was the same thing. And this sense of just security and joy came over Paul's heart. And that's what we see in the rest of the passage here. He says in verse uh, 8, he says, For now we live, since you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
That's wonderful. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. See, you know what the goodness of God does? You know when you cry out to God like that and he answers your prayer and he meets you? You know what it does? It excites your soul and it motivates you to ask for even bigger and greater things. That's why Paul's like, yes, Timothy's back. Good news, like the gospel to my soul once again. You guys are doing good. You're spiritually thriving. You're walking in faith, love, and obedience. I'm stoked. And he says, Lord, I still want to see them. Get me over there to see them. See, and that's what happens. I just want to tell you, please test the Lord in this. Please test the Lord in this. What is it, guys, that, that is like, what's that weight on your soul right now? And guys, we all have them. Where is it that, you know, you're, you're like under that pressure? Seek God. Surrender underneath that and seek him. Surrender doesn't mean inactivity. It means a move of the heart in prayer before the Lord. Do that. And I, I know that the Lord's going to meet you in that. He may answer in a way that you have not expected, but he is going to be there for you. And if you've experienced that, please say amen right now. Amen. That's the truth, isn't it? That's a common experience of us by the Holy Spirit working within us. So let's end right here. Paul cries out to God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus, who obviously has the same authority as within the Godhead. That is right there within the text there. He says that he would direct our way to you and may the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Let's stop there for a second. He is praying and crying out to the Lord that the Lord would come and cause him to abound and increase in love. He says, your faith, love, and obedience encourage me. He goes, but if I had to summarize that, because that really is what it means to press into the, or to walk closely with the Lord and to press into him. Those are the three things that are going to be evidence of that. He says, but if I had to kind of summarize it, he says, abound and increase in your love for one another. Let's do that together. Can we just say that we are on a battlefield and that people are dropping off, we all raised our hands, and that we need each other. We need to abound and increase in love to one another, which means relationship, and we desperately need that in this church, in every church, but in this church. We need that. He says to abound and increase in love, and here's where he ends. He says, so that... He, the Lord Jesus, might establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He says this. He says, from before, you were beloved and chosen. And he says, all the way back there to the end, predestined, called, justified, glorified. He says, you see that way down there at the end? That's the end game right there. And he says, on that day, it's not as if you need to be in your progress of sanctification, perfect. We're not talking about the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. We're talking about the habit of your life as far as pursuing Jesus. I hope you're encouraged. If you leave here and you're not encouraged about that, then literally I completely drop the ball. But some of us may be in a situation right now where you're thinking, I'm not that encouraged because I know that I have not been walking in that. Well, the God of mercy and grace, right? He calls you today to draw near to him. That's what he wants. The enemy wants to sequester you. The enemy wants to push you into the margin. The enemy wants to isolate you. Don't be isolated from Jesus. He's yours and you're his. Draw near to him. But this is where we end. This whole thing about progressive sanctification or growing in the image of Christ, it's all for a purpose. Because in the end, we're not talking about progressive sanctification. We're talking about positional sanctification, that God actually, sanctification means to be set apart. Okay, so we're not talking about the progress of sanctification, you being set apart in holiness. That's all for a purpose. There's the end game down the road where we will be set apart, and we have been at the th- before the throne of God, but when Jesus shows up on that last day and mortality is swallowed up by immortality, on that day we will stand perfected in holiness before him. And you have nothing to worry about if you are in Christ. You just go keep pursuing that, it's kind of crass, that ice cream. Run after Jesus. You keep pursuing him and, and fostering that growth and understanding and embracing the gospel more deeply every day and falling in love with Jesus and with his people as messy and nutty as we can all be, right? 
and looking to the lost too, to draw them to Christ all the while and walking in obedience. You do those things and you are on that progressive path of righteousness by the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit and only by him. But on that day, we are gonna stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus, who is the bridegroom, will take his bride and he will make a presentation on that day. And she will be without spot or wrinkle or any other thing. And that is what he does as the bridegroom for us. Now, do you have something to worry about? Oh boy, I hope I make it to the end. He's got you. And he's going to make a presentation of you and of me on that day. Holy, blameless before his father. Can you put up Jude chapter, uh, verse 20, 21? Here's where I want to end. But you, beloved. By the way, I know I'm going to hear about this. <laughs> that was really dumb. <laughs> But anyway, so he says this, Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Here's the main verb, guys. Keep yourself in the love of God. Now, he's not saying that we need to keep ourselves in that place where God loves us more. That's impossible. He, it's God who loves us. He already loves us with infinite love. That's, you can't change that or improve on that. But what he's saying is keep yourself in that place where your heart is stirred up with passionate love for your God. How do you do that? Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. This is exactly what we're talking about, guys. It's all over our Bibles. Build yourself up on your most holy faith. I know some people who are tragically um, torn in their souls about the Lord and about maybe his lack of nearness to him, but they never read their Bibles. Uh, you know, and I'm not, sorry, it's true. We need to do that. We need to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit, which I know immediately our minds go to like tongues and it, it does cover that. But he's saying praying in accordance with the will of Christ and the moving of the Holy Spirit upon your heart. Live like that, building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, and all the while keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and the mercy that is soon coming for us. Looking all the while as you do this, building yourself up, praying in the Holy Spirit. This is how you keep yourself and your heart fired up with love for God. And all the while look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life that is soon coming for each of us. He's coming back with more mercy for you and for me. It's never ending. And when that happens, and on that glorious day, when, immort when immortality swallows up mortality, we will be forever with the Lord. And as we look back upon the messiness of sanctification and the trouble of living in life as it is right now, and all the pain and the heartache that comes upon us, there's a purpose in all of that, and it's to draw us closer to Jesus now, but in the end, it'll be all for his glory. We need to rest in him. We need to trust in him in that, and we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and the reality that he has not forgotten us, but that he loves you, he wants to draw near to you, and he wants you to draw near to him. Draw near unto me, God says, and I will draw near unto you. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, God. We thank you, Jesus, that you have not left us nor forsaken us, God. You could never do that, Lord. We are your precious bride. We are the apple of your eye, Jesus. We are your, the, the treasure, Lord, that, that you've taken to yourself, God. And you delight and rejoice over us, Lord. And we just want to pray, Jesus, that these things, these gospel truths, and your passionate, wonderful love for us, would just drive us closer to you, God. We confess, Lord, that we're weak, Lord, and we're foolish, God. I'm talking about me. And Lord, that so often, God, we just don't do the things we ought to do, Lord, that would stir up our hearts in love for you. Would you help us in this, Jesus? Would you give us more of your Holy Spirit and of a, a desire, God, just to pursue you with all of our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength? And Lord, that you would give us just fresh insight into the wonder and the glory, God, that is coming Lord, as we are with you forevermore, we love you, Jesus. We praise your name. Amen.